Well, we want to look at this uh, passage from Luke chapter 18. So if you have your Bible, can I just encourage you to open it up there? And you'll find it really helpful both this morning and this evening. If you're able to come back, you're very welcome to come back. We're going to be looking at 1 John this evening. So please do um, join us as we look at that passage. And if you want to go ahead and read it before again, you'll find that really helpful. Keep yourself right and keep me right. So I'm not just making things up that I'm not bringing you some doctrine from Northern Ireland that's... You know, just totally crazy and out there. But I'm actually trying to help you understand what the Bible's teaching us. Look at this passage. I don't know what you do in Scotland, maybe with children, but back in Northern Ireland, we have a thing called Children's Day um, or Children's Sunday, where the children, you know, they they maybe read and they say poems and they sing at the front of the church. Do you have that? Okay, well, now I'm going to tell you about Challenge Sunday. So back home, we have the Sunday school basically takes that Sunday. And it's normal that a visiting preacher will come and take it in on that Sunday. And I heard a true story about um, a minister. His name's Noel Agnew. He's actually been over to Scotland many times to preach. And he came to take this children's service. You can imagine, just like your own six at the front here. The children are keen to impress, keen to please, keen to answer, put the hands up. So he came along and he said he was in his best suit, white shirt, uh, carefully chosen tie. And he was dealing with the passage, Samuel um, speaking to Saul. Um, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So then reduces his talk, talk, he said to the children, what do you think I did before becoming a minister? We hand shits up, um, turns around and says, yes, what do you think I did before becoming a minister? And the child replies, a bin man. I don't know what you think I did before, um, I, 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 I look like, but sometimes we can be so sure we know what's going on, can't we? We can be so sure we've figured something out, we've, we've got it sorted, um, we can have a great confidence, and that's what's going on in this passage. That's what's happening here in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18 is a passage where if we had been there, if we had watched this scene we would have said, I know how this is going to finish. If we'd heard Jesus tell this parable, we would have went, okay, hold everything. There's two characters here. I know who the good cop is. I know who the bad cop is. I know exactly what way this story is going to pan out. You would have said that and I would have said that. We would have had it all figured out. And we would have said, one of the men in this story goes home right with God and the other man in the story goes home far from God. And I know exactly which one. It's like, what, it's like watching, you know, the crime drama. If you're anything like my mum, she loves watching the crime dra- drama and figuring out who done it. You know, that person done it. You know, Colombo has said, let me just run this past you. And you've immediately gone, okay, that's the person who committed it. You've it all figured out. And that's what we would have said. But Jesus tells this story and Jesus brings this story to us and it would bring shock and disbelief. Now probably if you've been to church a few times, you've been conditioned to say, well I know the twist in this story. But if you've been amongst Jesus' original hearers, you would have been in total disbelief. Whenever Jesus introduces the story, and you see it there in verse 10, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector, you'd have went, right, sweet. Pharisee, boo, tax collector, or we would have said Pharisee, goody, tax collector, body. That's what we would have said, wouldn't we? We don't know the good guy and the bad guy. It says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
an unusual word for look to use, but it's that same word. I don't know if you use the Westminster Shorter Catechism, but it's that same word as the Catechism answer, justification. Somebody goes home right with God, somebody goes home far from God. And if Jesus hadn't told us, we would have got it wrong. And I want to try and open up this passage for you. I think your service finishes at 12. Okay, you're, you're, not, you're not sensible. We'll take as long as we want. Um, but I'm going to try and open it up with just like three, three points, three hangers for you. And I'm going to try and tell it with a love story. Uh, the most popular books are always love stories. Always sell the most. Always bring in the most cash. And I'm going to tell you three love stories this morning. So if you're taking notes... You can just put love story number one. Here's the first love story. The first love story is about this Pharisee. Now, the Pharisee was a good guy. The Pharisee was a really good guy. He loved his wife. He was faithful to his wife. He loved his children. He disciplined his children. He brought his children up to not just read the, read the scriptures, but to understand the scriptures. He himself wanted to do what the Bible said. He would have not only wanted to do what the Bible said, he would have wanted to do meticulously what the Bible said. He wouldn't have wanted to break it in any way. He wouldn't have been in a shop on a Sunday. He wouldn't have been speeding. He wouldn't have told a white lie. He wouldn't have done anything. He would have tried to live his life meticulously. If you had a problem and you thought, okay, I need somebody for good advice, you'd have phoned this guy up. He said, that's somebody I can trust, somebody who's going to be straight with me. Somebody who's not going to tell me lies and twist things, but somebody who's going to tell me exactly what the Bible says, and they're going to try and apply the Bible to my life. Because this is a man that knew all about applying the Bible to his life. Not only did he have the Bible, he had 613 rules that had been built around what he thought the Bible taught, to try and help him to obey what God had said. That's how he lived his life. I mean, this wasn't a wicked man. This was a good guy. He paid his taxes. The accountant wasn't thinking, he's kept something back here. He's left off a zero at the end of these figures. The accountant was thinking, this guy's too honest. And the shock in this story is, it says, that man went home far from God. Good guy went home far from God. And this guy's a confident man. And let's just flesh it out here. Verse 11. What's he confident about? The the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. So he was confident. Um, I don't know about the free church. The Presbyterian church is the church that I'm a minister of back in Northern Ireland. And... I kind of think in Reformed Evangelical circles, which the Presbyterian Church is, we have a list of acceptable sins. There's a list of sins that are, you know, okay. And there's a list of sins that are not okay. Now, nobody's going to publicly come out and say, well, that sin's okay and that sin's not okay. Not going to happen. You know, it's like homosexuality. Uh Uh-uh. No way. Absolutely not. Living with person you're not married to, well, we could stomach, we can, well not, I mean it's not okay, but we could kind of stomach it, you know, we're not going to condemn you, you know, that kind of idea, you're with me. Well, this man here, he had a list of sins, didn't he? I mean, what did he say? He said, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Their sin, their sin is terrible, but my sin is not too bad. He minimalized his own sin and he kind of maximized their sin. He compared himself to other people and allowed him to think, well, you know, I'm okay. Did you ever do that? 
I do it all the time. I look at, you know, wee Jimmy down the road or Julie across the street and think, real center over there, real center. Made it the newspaper. I'm pretty good. You know, they haven't put my name in the press yet. I mean, they haven't caught up with me yet. And compared to that person over there and the things that they're involved in, I mean, did you see what they put up on Facebook? Do you understand what's happened in their life? Compared to them, I am flying here. Now, you're never going to say it out loud, are you? But you kind of think that yourself. You kind of, if we look at other people and we do this kind of like go compare thing, you know, like the advert, go compare. And we compare ourselves. And what does that allow us to do? Minimalize what's going on in our own hearts and maximize what we see somebody else doing. And this is what this man here does. It kind of allows me to feel better about myself. Um, It kind of allows me to envy somebody else and pull them down to just lift me up a wee bit. So I, I I I feel okay about it inside. And this man says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And you know, he's right. He knows the Bible. This guy knows what the Bible teaches. Does the Bible teach extortion is wrong? Yeah. Does it teach unfairness is wrong? Yeah. Does it teach adultery is wrong? Yes. This man knows God's word. He knows what God's word says. And so he concludes, concludes, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that, and I don't do that. Therefore, I am not a sinner. I have not offended God. Because God says those things are wrong and I don't do those bad things. You know, we sometimes can teach the children it's good to be good and it's bad to be bad. So don't be bad, be good. And the children grow up thinking, okay, well, if I'm not bad, that must mean I am good. That's what this man here thought. And it's interesting, what does he comfort himself with? He comforts himself with the sins that he hasn't committed. You know, these are the sins. God, I thank you that I've not stolen a billion pounds. Well, the chances that happen are slim, but this is what this man comforts himself with. And how does he, how does he not just play down his sins, push up everybody else's, but how does he think he's going to like, increase his standing with God? Well, he kind of adds to what he thinks God wants. Just look at that verse 12. Again, if you have the Bible in front of you, it'll keep you right and it'll keep me right. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Well, tithing's commanded in the Old Testament, isn't it? It's not actually commanded in the New Testament. We're not told to give a tenth in the New Testament. We're told to give sacrificially. Are you ever commanded to fast in the Bible? Find a verse in the Bible anywhere where you're commanded to fast. Even for a Pharisee, they were only to fast once a year. This man's fasting twice a week. He's fasting twice a week. He's taking something, even the rules that has been set up for him about, you know, if I do this, God will be pleased with me. And he's just kind of multiplied it. He said, okay, well, God's asked for this. Look at all the things I'm doing for God. Look, I'm fasting twice a week. If, you know, if, if Christians, if believers were in the comic books, he says, I'm a superhero. I am, I am doing so much for God here. I'm fasting twice a week. I'm giving tithes. I'm a great guy. And what he's actually done is he's taken his own personal preference and he's bolted it on to what he thinks makes him acceptable before God. And who does he think's done all this? Who does he think has made him a really good guy? God. God's made him a good guy. That's why he says, God, I thank you. I would not be the great guy that I am unless you'd done it, God. Okay, here's the question. I told you the points are about love stories. Where is the love story here? Where is the love story? Let me ask it a different way. Who does this man love? 
He loves himself, don't he? Who's the judge in this man's opinion? Well, he is. He looks at other people. He would look at you. He would look at me and he'd say, well, thank goodness. God's in the churches. Well, I go to church, he would say. I know the rules. I keep the rules. This is a man who stands and the greatest love story that he's ever told is how much he loves himself. And he is a good, living, decent man here. You see, in the wee service sheet, I never have sermon titles. And I was trying to think of a sermon title. And so I'm sorry that this one was terrible. But I put down three ways to live. Because you see, there are three ways to live your life. You can be a born-again Christian. Saved. Regenerate. You can be an absolute pagan who's not going to be in the pew on a Sunday, who's going to be down in the pub, okay? And we think there's two ways to live, but actually there's three ways to live. Because you can, you can look like this person, but have the heart of this person. You can look, I can look like a really good Christian. I can say the right things, I can have a Bible, I can turn up at church, I can know the right words, I can pray my taxes, and I can look like a Christian, I can sound like a Christian, but my heart can be like this guy who's an absolute pagan. You see, you can be a rebel, you can be an open rebel or a quiet rebel. The people who are saying, like, I'm going down to pub on a Sunday morning, I'm not going to church, I'm having nothing to do with going through those doors. Baptism or communion, or, or baptism or a wedding or a funeral, see me in church, other than that, no. And we'll think, well, that person's far from God. But you can walk in the door every Sunday and be far from God. You can be a really good person and be far from God. You can look like a Christian and sound like a Christian and be far from God. You can be openly opposed to God or quietly opposed to God. And that's why I put down there three ways to live your life. And you know what it is? It's really difficult to convince people who are in this middle way that they're not actually believers. It's really difficult to try and convince good people that they're not Christians, that they're not saved. This is a stupid illustration, so forgive me. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves was on the TV yesterday. I remember as a wee boy watching the one with Kevin Costner. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just stare at the ceiling for a minute. And I was watching Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and I remember watching it as a kid, you know, like this age, and I remember thinking, oh, great show. And I was watching it, it must have been 20 years since I watched it. You know what I actually took away? It's full of moralism. It's just a story about a, a guy who does good things. It's a story about a guy who does good things and everybody's supposed to look up to him because he does his good things. And I didn't notice it as a kid, but it's kind of saturated into your mind. Be a good person, do good things, and everybody will love you. And the way that our society works is, you're a good person, aren't you? Be a good person, and a good person will have these views and these morals. And it's really difficult to convince good people that they're not yet saved, but that's what's happening in this story. Because this is a good guy. But it's a good guy who loves himself. And it's really difficult to convince good people. Good church going people. That doing good things and avoiding bad things. Doesn't make you saved. I used to say back in Northern Ireland. Irreligious people know they're avoiding God. Religious people think they know God. And this guy is confident in his righteousness. Look at it. You see, it says in verse 9, confident of their own righteousness and looking down on everybody else. That's who Jesus is speaking to. Jesus is speaking to people who are confident. I mean, this man comes to pray, right? He comes to pray. 
What do you do when you pray? Well, you talk to God. But who does this man talk to? He almost talks to himself. Whenever you pray, where are you looking? I mean, where are you looking? Well, you're looking up. Where's he looking? He's looking in to see what he's like. And he's looking out to you. So he can judge you and tell you what you're like. This man's prayer, he begins and it sounds like he's talking to God, but actually he's just talking about himself. You read this prayer and you think this man's worshipping God. You know, he says, God, I thank you. But he's not worshipping God, he's worshipping himself. This is like an Oscar ceremony. You know, whenever they get the Oscar, you know, McConaughey comes up for the Oscar and he says, you know, I want to thank the director for, you know, for making me look so good and I want to thank the casting department for realising my brilliance and I want to thank my wife for supporting me and, and bringing out of me how great I am and I want to thank God for making me this fantastic. You know, it sounds like an acceptance speech where he's thanking everybody else but you know in that acceptance speech who's he actually praising? It's all about him. And that's the same with us. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He, look at, he looks at them and he judges them, but ultimately he's just looking into himself. You know what the scary thing is? Do you know what the really scary thing is? You're possibly thinking, thank goodness I'm not like that Pharisee. Because <laughs> that's exactly what he thought. Thank goodness he wasn't like other men. And you can see what happened. He congratulated himself that he wasn't like them. And I can congratulate myself and say, look, I'm here in church. And thank goodness I'm not as hypocritical as that Pharisee. So that's the first love story. Here's the second love story. I hope you're still with me. hope the accent hasn't baffled you. Um, so let's keep going. The second love story. Well, we've got the tax collector. We've got the tax collector. Just even this past week, um, the D-Day commemoration, 75 years. If you've ever watched any of those kind of documentaries about what it was like in France in the Second World War, you know what happened. Some people colluded with the Germans. Whenever the war ended, what happened? Well, they were singled out. They had their heads shaved. They were ridiculed. They were, they were held up. They were, they were not just mocked, but they were abused because they had sided with the enemy. And they were hated. That's what this tax collector's like. He has sided with the occupying force. The Romans have come in. They've swamped the land. And here is a guy who's now in league with the Romans. And not only is he in league with the Romans, but he's getting rich. He's skimming off the top. He's taking money from his own people. He's given a portion of that to Romans. And he is making a mint out of the rest of it. And he would have been hated for it. You wouldn't have had to think, well, the tax collector, I mean, he just worked for HMRC. You would have been thinking, the tax collector, I hate that guy. I hate him. If you'd been his neighbour, you would have wanted nothing to do with him. And he'd have been betrayed, or he'd have been viewed as betraying his people and despising God. But look at it. Just look at how this man deals with himself. Verse 13. We thought about the attitude of the Pharisee. Well, what about the attitude of this tax collector? We think about the Pharisee. It says two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself. So where is the Pharisee standing? This Pharisee standing and saying, I'm praying, but I want you to notice I'm praying. There's nobody around me. There's not a crowd around me here. You're not going to miss me. But it says about the tax collector, the tax collector standing far off. This is a guy who's not confident. 
This is, this is a man who I think is a little bit of humility. We said about the Pharisee, what marked him out was that whenever he came to pray, he looked in to think about how great he was. He looked out to you and he did this kind of comparison. But what can we say about this tax collector? Where, where's he looking? Well, he's not even looking upwards. What does it say in verse 13? He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast. He's not even looking up. He's looking down. There's not any confidence here. There's no pride here. You see, we said about the Pharisee, he thought about other people and thought, well, you know, compared to them, I'm good. But this man's not like that. He understands exactly what he's like and he understands exactly what he's like and he keeps his head down because he has at some point looked up and thought, what's God really like? Because I understand what God's really like, then I understand what I'm really like. Like compared to you, if we were to just go compare, I don't know who's going to come out best. I would be pretty sure it would be you. But when I see what God's like, well then I'm a dirty sinner. There's no pride here. There's no confidence here. I understand really what I'm like when I understand what God's like. This man's gaze is not upward. This man's gaze is downward because he knows his condition. I'm using the ESV. The ESV, I'm not sure what the NIV says. I think it says the exact same thing. It says um, in verse 13, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In the, in the original language, it doesn't even say a sinner. It says this sinner. He says, God be merciful to me, this sinner. Now that's not to minimize this sin, but it's to say, God if I want to say one thing about myself, I am a sinner. I've sinned against you. I define myself by what I understand you're like. When it comes to sin, he says, well, it's not just that I've done bad things, but I'm a sinner in thought and word and deed. Oftentimes I explain sin to the children. It says, is that middle letter? I. Who's the most important person? I. Who do I want to live for? I. That's what sin's all about. It's all about me, myself, and I. And this man, well, he comes to God. And he says, he says a word here that, it's not a word I use very often in everyday language. Maybe you do. But he says before God, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And actually the word's not even mercy there. The word is God, be propitious to me. Now you're thinking... Where's this going to go? Propitious. Um, a friend of mine went to, to theological college in, in Sydney. In his interview to get into the college, okay, he was asked, could you explain propitiation to a pagan? I would have said, what do those words mean? But that was his question to get in. I probably couldn't even answer it when I got out of college. Well, propitiation means to turn away. Propitiation means to turn away by putting a substitute in the place. And this man comes to God and says, God, I want you to turn away your wrath towards me. Turn away your wrath towards me. Let there be someone else that would stand in my place. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. See, God's wrath is coming on us because of our sin. And this man says, God, provide a substitute. When this man comes to pray, who does he come and pray to? We thought about the Pharisee and he kind of prayed and everybody would hear. But this man prays and he talks to God and God alone. 
It's really easy, isn't it, to pray. It's really easy to come to church and be concerned with everybody else. But this is a man who comes to deal with God. I told you that there was a love story here. Let me ask you the question. Where is it? What does this man know about God? What does this tax collector know about God? If, you had to, if I said to you, I want you to pick out one doctrine that this man tells us that he knows about God. What does he know about God? What does he know about the character of God? If this man was given a sheet of paper and had to write on it, what is God like? What would his answer be? Well, you say it there, don't you? What's the one thing that he knows about God? God, be merciful to me. He knows that God is merciful. He knows that God will not treat him as he deserves. He knows that as he comes to pray, it's not about him and how great he is, but it's about God and God showing mercy to a sinner. This is a man who comes with biblical repentance. Biblical repentance is not, I feel really bad about this. Biblical repentance is I come in despair of myself, but I come and throw myself in God. The difference between feeling really bad about something and repentance is whenever I'm remorseful, I feel really bad about it. I'm sorry that it happened. And then I kind of get disillusioned. But that's not repentance. Because repentance is not only that I understand who God is and understand what I am. But I throw myself in God. I don't say God will have nothing to do with me. I throw myself in God because I know he's merciful. And this is a man who comes to God. This is a man who comes and his love is not in himself. His love, his love is for a God who is merciful. There's three love stories. And the last love story. Well... It's a love story that we might miss even in this passage. Because this is a love story. This is the greatest love story that's ever been told. This is the greatest love story that has assured us of our justification. That we can know God would be propitious to us, merciful to us. As the weak girl said at the front there, when Jesus Christ rose from the grave, we're assured of our justification. But it's because of this love story. Let's remember where these men are. Where does Jesus set this story? Where does it happen? It doesn't happen in the East End of London. It's not Coronation Street. Jesus sets this story at the temple. Two men go up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And what happened at the temple? Why did you go to the temple? Well, at the temple, the priest would offer animal sacrifices for the sins of the people. And both men would have gone up to the temple. I don't know if you've ever come across an animal sacrifice, maybe in your holidays, maybe in, in Turkey or in the Far East. Well, there's a lot of blood. And these men would have saw the dead animal and they would have saw the blood. And yet, the Pharisee came to pray. But he remained proud and absorbed with himself. He didn't think about sin. He didn't think about God's wrath and sin and how blood needed to be shed. And yet the tax collector came to this place of sacrifice and he saw the blood. And he wasn't looking in on himself. He was looking to God. See, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was pointing forward to sacrifice. A sacrifice, a propitiatory sacrifice where one would come as a substitute and turn away the wrath of God. The tax collector in faith cried for God's mercy and he looked not to himself but to a God who is merciful, to a God who would ultimately show his mercy through a perfect sacrifice 
And the greatest love story that's ever told is that story of where God's wrath and God's mercy meet. And they met on the cross. Where that divine lamb came and shed his blood for people who know they're sinners and to cry out for God for mercy. Justification is a wonderful word because justification is a legal term. It's a declaration. God says something. He says, this is my verdict. And you can know God's verdict on your life. You can know exactly what God thinks about you today if you're not already a believer. As you come and say, God, I want you to be merciful to me, the sinner. God, I want you to forgive me. I thank you that you sent your son Jesus who loved me. Even though he knows exactly what I'm like, he loved me and he shed his blood for me. You see, the way that Jesus tells this story, and I'm, you'll forgive me, you might never invite me back, I might never even find my way back, but the way that Jesus invites this, or tells this story, he only tells us there's two types of people. Jesus says there's Pharisees and there's tax collectors. There's those who love themselves and look to themselves and compare themselves to other people. And they do not love God. And then Jesus says there's tax collectors. There's those who come who know what God's like and know exactly what they're like because they know him. And they cry out to God for mercy. And they will know his justification today. They will know God's mercy. They will know what it is for their sin to be put to his account and his holiness and his perfection to be put to their account. And that's the greatest love story that's ever been told. And so I want to ask you this morning, do you know this Jesus? And do you know his great love for you? Do you know that he would welcome you to come to him? Maybe you're here this morning and you've really struggled with things. I don't know any of you. I don't know what's your lover. I don't know your story. And I don't need anything. But you can bring it before God and you can say, God, I've... I've been putting on this facade. I've been far from you. And he longs to hear from you. He longs for you, young person, older person, to talk to him and just to cry out for his mercy. Because Jesus Christ loved you so much that he shed his blood for you. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray to God.